The scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews 11, um, chapter 11, verses 29 through chapter 12, verse 2. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. It's time for the children. Are there any children who'd like to come down here and sit with me today? I know some of you may be new and aren't used to this sort of thing, or maybe you are used to this sort of thing. But if you'd like to join me, you can come on down here. I promise not to bite. Well, <laughs> one child, okay, Yasella and her daughter. This is great. We'll have to sit down, okay? So what is your name? May I ask your name? Eva. Eva, that's a lovely name. Very, very nice. I'm kind of looking for another daughter that's supposed to be here today, too. My daughter, but I don't see her yet. Eva. How old are you, Eva? Ten. How old? Four. <laughs> don't you ever get tired of adults, as soon as they meet you, going, how old are you? That's like the first question. <laughs> like, who cares? Have you, but let's shift gears a bit. Have you been watching the Olympics at all? Do you have any interest at all in the Olympics? Well, you want, let's go sit down again then. <laughs> okay, let me share some thoughts then. In case you haven't noticed, the Olympics are going on on television. I know it's not as important or as exciting as some of those cartoons on Nick, Nicktoons or whatever those are, but anyway, the, all these athletes, 17,000 plus athletes from all over the world have gathered in Rio for these Olympics to compete with the possibility of winning a gold medal, or any medal. 
So what do you think would be a good thing to take along with you if you were going to compete in some sort of athletic competition? Well, I'll share some thoughts. I'm not an Olympic competitor, but I do like to go to the gym. I like to run a lot. So what would be some things that you would take along with you if you were going to, what do you need to run with? What would anyone need to run with? Mom. Sure. I mean, if you're four, you would need your mother. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. I, sh that there you go. Shoes. Yeah. I brought some of my running shoes. I'm not endorsing Nike, but these happen to be Nikes. They've got to be colorful shoes. Water if you're swimming. That's, oh, thank you. Got to stay hydrated. That's true. And I've got a bottle of water up there, so thank you for that, Mike. You've also got to have some clothing, so I've got some uh, shorts and a little top here to, to wear. Those are some of the basics. And I thought about a couple other things about all these people who are competing, running, jumping, flipping, twirling, shooting, rowing, all these athletes. Um, I don't know how many of them have a belief in God, but I think another important thing they have to bring along would be a Bible, or at least something to remind them that they are not doing this alone, that their parents are there for them, that their country is there for them, and that God is there with them and, and for them, encouraging them on. And God is with us every day as well. Whether we're running a race or whether we're going to preschool or just hanging around the house helping mom bake cookies, if she bakes cookies. Yesterday she helped her grandmother make cookies. That's pretty good. Well, whatever you're doing, know that you're not alone. And it usually requires a lot of people to get through life. It's hard to go it alone. And it's also nice to know that God is always with us. So let's bow our heads for just a little prayer. We thank you, loving God, for this time together and for the awareness that you are always with us, whether we're running or jumping or baking cookies. We thank you for your amazing love for us and for the world. Amen. Well, that song this morning, Yasella, was really nice, very touching, and I needed to hear that, so <sighs> I feel uplifted, so thank you. Even though it was a kind of a somber song about how worn life can be, I, it somehow was uplifting in the fact that we are not alone, that we are all struggling throughout life and our faith, and it's not always a joyous journey, but our scriptures will share some of that. I've been emailing Rick this week, so I know that you talked about Hebrews last week, the earlier section of this reading, and that it continues this week as well. But you've been studying Hebrews with the idea of looking at Abraham, I guess, kind of a historical personality sort of study of, of, of uh, Abraham in the uh, Old and New Testament. I preached on this very same text, uh, text last week at a different church, and, but my emphasis was more upon uh, the more traditional idea about faith, since that's kind of how it begins. And, since this scripture continues this week with the rest of Hebrews, the 11th chapter and parts of the 12th, I thought we would just continue talking about faith. So you weren't there at that church last week to hear these words. There's only one here in this church this morning who did hear those words, but that's okay. For her, I'll add some things to make it relevant as well, hopefully today. Chapter 11 of, of Hebrews begins with the words, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I've always liked the scripture, the idea of 
Faith is something that is not tangible, something we cannot see, touch, taste, or feel, and yet we can believe it. We can believe it into existence. That seeing is not necessarily believing, but believing is seeing. That if we believe something strongly enough, that we will see that come to fruition. And then the writer of Hebrews gives us all sorts of examples of Old Testament personages because you can't just talk about faith per se. It's kind of a theological construct. It's a theoretical thing. So he wants to make it more real. So he gives some living examples of what faith is supposed to be about. So he talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah in the Old Testament. And then he talks about the quintessential couple in the Bible, Abraham and Sarah, and how they were called by faith to leave their homeland, which was the Ur, in Ur of Chaldees, which is now modern-day Iraq, by the way, and travel to the Promised Land, Canaan in those days, which is modern-day Israel. And they did that on faith because God just called them out of their retirement, so to speak, because Abraham, if you've been studying, which I guess you have been, was fairly advanced in years, and Sarah was pretty old too at the time, and yet God promised that out of them would come more descendants than they could ever imagine, which was no small feat, because as I said, they were both advanced in age. These are sort of the quintessential people of the Bible, Abraham and Sarah, and then Hebrews goes on and lists a lot of others like David and Samson and Samuel and Barak and a few others. I never knew the president was mentioned in the Bible, but there it is, Barak. But anyway. And the New Testament is full of, new, of personages too that we've come to know, right? The Peters, the Pauls, the disciples, Mary, Cleopas, Joanna. Eunice, Lois, all these famous people from the Bible, many of whom occur throughout the Bible, and some of whom are only mentioned once and then sort of fade into oblivion. They were maybe not oblivion, they were probably working on behalf of Jesus Christ, but you don't really hear a lot about them after that. <clears throat> In our modern days, we have people, a great personages of faith too. We've all grown up hearing about uh, Mother Teresa and her work with the lepers in India. And there was the marches in Soma with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and all those other people who were striving to end racism and poverty and prejudice in, in the South. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Dorothy Day and Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for many, many years for his beliefs. We've kind of heard about these great people of the faith throughout our lives. But you know, I don't meet too many Nelson Mandelas in my daily life. I don't meet too many Moseses. I don't run into too many Mother Teresas. I wished I did. It'd be nice if we met more, but I don't see too many of those people. What I run into are pretty much average people, ordinary people like myself, although I'm a little unordinary. <laughs> but I meet average people in my daily life and work, and those are the people whose faith speaks to me. I don't know if you know much about my life, but I'll tell you some of that, other than knowing Rick for many years. I work in hospice now as a hospice chaplain, I've been doing that for almost 12 years. And so I deal with people who have a life-limiting illness. People who have been given six months or less to live by their doctors. And I provide spiritual care for them in their struggles and their journeys toward the end of life. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's hard to be with someone who's putting their life together, or in a sense, finalizing their lives, dealing with their own mortality, coming to grips with what that means and being there with them and trying to provide spiritual care, whatever that means in their life, 
whether it's talking about the Dodgers or whether it's talking about God or whether it's reading scriptures or whether it's just holding their hand, whether it's re renewing their faith and telling them that it's going to be all right or helping them to know that there is a heaven and am, am I going to be there? I mean, all these things and more go through people's minds when they're dealing with the end of their life. And I'm sure that we will all deal with those issues when we come near the end of our lives. It's always kind of a daunting thing. So I wanted to share with you some people I encounter on a daily basis that renew my faith, that shows me their faith. These are not the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s or the Nelson Mandela's of life. These are the average people who are, ending their, are nearing the end of their lives. I was called to the emergency room a few, months, a few weeks ago to Downey Memorial Medical Center to help a family whose 24-year-old son was dying of uh, testicular cancer. It had metastasized, and he was at home. They were trying to care for him at home on hospice, and he was having difficulties breathing, respiratory distress, so they do what most families do with a 24-year-old. Maybe not so much if they were 94, but if they're 24, they call 911 and they send him to the hospital. Even though he was on hospice, they sent him to the hospital nonetheless. And he was in the ER, and they were trying to deal with his uh, symptoms, calming down. They had intubated him. They put a tube down his throat, and he was breathing through machines. And all of his family was there in that room. And there were Latino families, so there was a lot of people there. And God bless the hospital. They let all these people be there in the emergency room. Normally, they try to limit that to just two people. But the nurse said, you know, as long as they stay in the little room and they're not spilling out into the hallway here, it'll be okay. So there's like 20 people in this room. And they wanted to have a priest come. So we finally found a priest, a Vietnamese priest. I thought that was fun. A Vietnamese priest for a Latino family. And before he was done, here comes a Baptist minister, a friend of the families. So here's the priest, the Vietnamese priest, and this Baptist minister with a suit and his Bible, because you can't, you know, you gotta have a Bible. Well, we should have Bibles, but Baptists really like the, so he was reading his scriptures and he's praying, and the priest is anointing and doing his thing, and the family's all around crying, and I'm kind of just there in the background, just trying to hold this thing together and lift them up in prayer. The decision was made to remove the, the breathing tube, and so after the priest left and the Baptist minister left, the family called the nurses in and they extubated him, which means they took out the tube, and about 10 minutes later, he just slowly passed away. And they turned off the machines. And the family didn't, the only thing they could do at that point, they, they went home without their son. But with the hope that they would somehow see him again, someday see him again. That he, and when they did see him again, that he would be whole and pure and at peace when they see him again in heaven. And that really speaks to faith to me, about faith. I know a woman who lives here in Orange County. Her name is Donna, and she takes care of her husband, Vernon. They've been married nearly 50 years, maybe more than 50 years. Vernon has Parkinson's. He's had it for about four years, and if you know anything about Parkinson's, he really can't care for himself. He's just, just trembling and jerking, and, and he's a big guy. So Donna literally has to pick him up out of his easy chair and using his weight against hers, transfer him over into his wheelchair so then she can wheel him to the bathroom or to the dinner table or to the bed and then transfer him into the bed or back onto the commode or back to the chair. And she does that day in and day out, hour after hour. That's her life, continues to be her life because she's his primary caregiver. A few months ago, Donna was diagnosed with breast cancer. 
So she went through a couple of rounds of chemo to kind of help shrink the tumor, and they operated and took the tumor out, and then she went through a couple of rounds of radiation to make sure that they got rid of whatever cancer cells may be lingering, and all of her hair fell out, and she had burn marks on her body. You know, and so when I go to visit her, she sits there and she cries and she hurts and she is tired beyond belief, but yet she still day in and day out takes care of Vernon because that's what's necessary. And that's what I think faith is about. You know, where does she get the strength to do that? I think she gets it from her faith. She can't go to the Lutheran church any longer, the local Lutheran church that she used to go to. Now she's kind of trapped in this, her, her health and his health and can't get down there. But that faith that was instilled in her when she could go to the church is still living out in her life through how she deals with her cancer and how she deals with her husband. There's a woman I know also who would go to see her father her mother died several years ago, and her father was, could no longer care for himself at home, and so they put the, her father in a senior living center. It was up in Temple City area. This woman lived down in the South Bay. So it was about a 25-mile drive. They decided to put their father in this, in, into this independent living, and then eventually he, his health declined, and he moved into assisted living. And she would go up to visit him twice a week, once during the week on, after work, and then once on the weekend she would go up there twice a week to see her father, and she did that for 14 years until he died. And I just think that's an incredible amount of faith. I don't know why she did it. She didn't have to do it. He was in an assisted living. He had people around him. It wasn't like he was all alone. If he had any medical needs, they were there. Why did she have to do that? She did it because when she was growing up, her parents would take her to church every Sunday, and they would sit in the balcony, and they would listen to the preaching, and that faith that she learned from her mother and father in church on Sundays got translated into action in her life, you know, and how she returned the favor, in a sense, to her parents and lived out her faith with her father. She still goes to the grave two or three times a year and cleans the headstones of her parents and trims the grass around the headstones, puts little flowers in the vase, partly for the parents, and partly for the deer that come out of the Hollywood Hills to eat those flowers later that day. That's a pretty amazing thing. There are folks who long to have children and have trouble having children, and then one day they become pregnant, at least the woman does. And the miracle of miracles, they are going to have a child. And then a month or two later, she miscarries. Maybe you've lived through this. Maybe you know someone who has. And sometimes that can be devastating to couples. I've got a personal friend who I used to work with at a different hospice who had two miscarriages, so she quit trying. But a lot of people try over again. They try again, and they try again. They try knowing what may happen because it's already happened once, but they try nonetheless because they believe, if they believe enough, if they have enough hope, if they have enough faith, that it will happen this time. And that somehow this new child can not really replace or make up for the other one, but will maybe be a way of honoring that stillborn child or miscarried child. 
It's an amazing thing, I think, to do that, to have the faith, the hope, the courage to chart that course into the unknown with the understanding that something terrible could happen again, that your faith not be, that your hopes may not be realized. Kind of like that Warren song. It can kind of drag you down, but you go on nonetheless. And there are people in relationships and marriages, spouses, who forgive their, their husband or their wife for infidelity, and it happens in relationships too. How do people go on with that? How do they forgive, in a sense? Not forget, but forgive and try again, believing that this relationship can be better because of that, that they can grow through this, that they can stand for each, with each other and by each other for better or for worse. They do that, I think, not even always out of love because at that point you can't really love that person too much that's hurt you like that, but you can do it because you have faith. Faith in yourself, faith in the process, faith in life. These are all great instances of faith, I believe. When my children were growing up, and she's not here, my daughter. Are you here, Jennifer? Jennifer's not here. Jennifer and her daughter, and my, my other daughter, her sister Laura, used to play with Rick's kids, Carrie and Rhea. Well, I've discovered recently from talking to my kids that when they were, they were so little, they don't remember any of that stuff, you know? So I'll have to uh, tell them about all these stories of playing with Carrie and Rhea. Nonetheless, when my kids were growing up, kind of like the prodigal son story, you know, all kids go through their times in their lives with, when they're searching, when they're pushing the envelope, when they're, when they're pushing the bounds of what's acceptable and what's not and they're breaking the rules, and they know they're breaking the rules. But people do that. Teenagers do that. Young kids do that because they have to find themselves. And just like the prodigal son, whose father, remember the story of the prodigal son where the, he takes his inheritance and goes off and squanders it in a faraway land with decadent living, riotous living, it says, in one of his translations. And then he comes to his senses at some point, realizes here he is slopping the pigs, and he should go back home and seek forgiveness from his father. At least he could maybe get a job as a hired hand. It would be better than slopping the hogs in some slave master in some faraway land. And as he's coming home down that road, his father sees him. Now, how does his father see him? His father's a fairly wealthy man. He should be out tending the flock or, you know, mowing the, the back 40 or whatever they do in those days. But no, his father sees him because he's standing at this window looking down the road with the hopes that he'll see that son coming down the road. And he does someday because he has hope that he'll see that son someday. He has hope that his son will come to his senses and will come home regardless of what crazy behavior he's been doing because his father loves him so much that he's willing to overlook all those sorts of things if he can just see his son coming home again. When my kids were going through their stuff, I had faith in them. Just like the story of the father and the prodigal son had faith in his son to come to his senses and to hopefully have the courage to come home, I knew that my girls would get through all their stuff. And we know that our families will get through our, their stuff and our stuff because of our own faith and hope. You know, I've been watching the Olympics this week. Well, you don't know, but I'll tell you. I've been watching the Olympics a lot this week. 
I could have been baking cookies with my grandmother, which is a good thing to do. That's fun. I've been watching a lot of the Olympics. I mean, I'm just amazed at Michael Phelps and what he's been able to do. You know, we have seen something unique in our lives that I don't think will be duplicated again with the, the amount of abilities that he's had, the medals he's won, and the fairly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of a, with a very uh, humble approach in a sense. He's achieved greatness beyond anybody's expectations, and yet he's not beating his chest and bragging about all he's done. He's just there to be a model to others and to help other younger swimmers come along. We've seen Katie Ledecky just blow people out of the water. We've seen Simone Biles do things gymnastically that are seemingly impossible and defy gravity, defy human ability, and yet she does them so effortlessly. And those sorts of things leave an impression. They're imp incredible instances of raw human ability and faith in oneself and faith in their country. But you know, there are 17,000 plus athletes in that athletic village. Only a handful of those people are gonna take home a medal. The vast majority of people are gonna come and they're gonna compete and they're gonna run and they're gonna jump and they're gonna swim and they're gonna sail and they're gonna row and they're gonna shoot and they're not gonna win anything. And they're gonna come home and either try it again in four years or hang up their cleats or their bows or whatever they have, their gymnastic outfits, and they're going to go off into some other area of life to begin a new chapter. And those people that go home without a medal are just as valid, just as important as the people who win 23 gold medals and 28 medals overall, because they exhibit faith to us. Maybe against all odds they exhibit faith. When Michael Phelps goes into the water, we almost know he's going to win. When somebody else goes in the water, we don't know. There's a trampoline guy I saw yesterday. We were shopping for shoes, and they, of course, Olympics on everywhere you go. There's a kid from Orange County, forget his name, I'm sorry. He's, he was an alternate for the 2008 Olympics and the 2012 Olympics, an alternate in trampoline. I mean, who watches trampoline? Not to denigrate a sport, but I mean, NBC could basically care less about the trampoline because they hardly ever show it, you know? But here he is. He, his third Olympics, he finally makes the team. He was an alternate for two Olympics. And he comes back for his third Olympics. He makes the team. He finished 12th in the trampoline. I mean, what kind of difference does that make? I commend the guy for his efforts. He could have given it up a long time ago, but he kept going because he had faith in himself and faith in the process and, and hope against hope that he may also win a medal. But he didn't. But it doesn't make him any less an athlete or any less an Olympian than those others who may win medals. At the end of the chapter, in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews does point out that many good and faithful people do not receive what was promised. The majority of people will not see the outcome of their desire, will not get the reward, just like many athletes don't win medals. And he also tells us that even though some people will see, achieve great glory, that there will also be people who will be sawn in two, or punished, or beaten, or imprisoned for their faith. 
So it's not just a glorious journey that we're on. Our faith sometimes causes us and calls us into challenges and the difficult situations that we'd rather not go into or deal with, but we end up having to. And those difficult challenges could be cancers or car accidents or little children in hospitals. Things that we don't ever expect or hope will happen do happen because, of, because we're human. And those things do happen in our lives. No one is immune. Even the faithful in Hebrews. You would think that if you had all this great faith that you would be immune to any sort of troubles, sadness, poverty, disease, but that's not the way it works. It happens to us all. What the difference is is how we persevere through it, how we exercise our faith. And that's what Hebrews says in the 12th chapter when he says, they are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, which signifies that we are not alone in this journey. Just like those Olympic athletes who got there, they didn't get there on their own. I mean, they put in the hard work, but they got there because of support from families and friends and pastors and teachers and coaches and a whole entourage of people who believed them and helped them along the way. And so we exercise our faith knowing that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that there are countless others who have gone before, who have dealt with the same sort of things or even worse things, and yet they have gotten through it on their faith and sometimes didn't even receive the reward they were hoping for, but nonetheless, they did it because they believed in themselves and in God. So we don't need to do this alone, do we? We are in this for the long haul together. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, all those who have gone before, who have faced their challenges, lived their faith, and yet run the race with perseverance that is set before them. The trick is to do it with perseverance, it seems, with resolve, with resilience, with faith, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Because Jesus was a great example of how we should live and how we should die with faith in God, not always knowing the outcome, not always being sure of the outcome, maybe not even receiving the outcome as we expect it to be, but trusting nonetheless that God will see it through till the end. In the, 20, in the 12th chapter of Luke's gospel, that was part of the reading from last week, Jesus gives his, his disciples an example of how they should live their lives. Let me share with you a few of those thoughts in closing here. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so they may open the door for him as soon as the, he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's great pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give, them, give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. 
for where your treasure is there will your heart be also. In other words, Jesus tells them, he says, in a sense, don't sit idly by, be active in what you do. We can't just wait for God to act. Sometimes we have to get up and do that on our own. Sell your possessions, give alms, give to the poor, bring backpacks to the refugees, do what you can to make the lives of others around you better, put your trust in God, store up treasures in heaven, gird your loins and keep your lamps burning. In other words, be ready, be active, be vocal. Don't be passive observers in life. Don't wait around hoping for something good to fall into your lap. Get up and move forward and make something happen to the best of your ability. Act as if you are loved because you are. Even if the future looks bleak, even if the future looks uncertain, even if we don't have a chance for a medal, even if we're not Abraham or Sarah or Paul or Mother Teresa, let us not meet our current situation or the future with resignation or defeat. Let us meet our future with expectancy and hope. Hope that the best is yet to come and, f and that faith will continue to work with and for God and to strive for whatever God has in store. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Loving God, we thank you for all that you bring into our lives, for those around us that make our lives better, for the opportunities you give to us to make the lives of others around us better, and for your amazing love in our life. Increase our faith each day that we might continue to serve you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.